Howdy folks, Craig here. We have yet another Arcanist Deep Dive, this time with Stephen Bynum, who decided to come back to the show and tell us everything we need to know to make Marcus and the Chimera crew effective on the table. At the end, we even spend time talking through ways to counter this beast of a crew. Before we jump in, our friends at Gadzooks Gaming has a sweet offer for all our U.S. and Canadian listeners. Gadzooks Gaming has always been a big supporter of the third floor in games like Malifaux, Wild West Exodus, Dark Age, Frostgrave, and Legion. What makes them my favorite online retailer is the customer service and their amazing custom terrain and accessories. Now, they're giving all of our North American listeners free shipping if you spend $100 or more and then enter in the promo code THIRDFLOOR. Spelled out one word, T-H-I-R-D-F-L-O-O-R. Check them out at gadzooksgaming.com. The details are in the show notes. Now on to the episode. Man, everything I'm hearing you say, Steve, just screams flexibility, which I think has a tremendous amount of value. As a result, I tend to build his crew around models that can benefit from those abilities he has. It's powerful mechanically in the game, and it's fluffy as hell, and it makes me really happy. Um, About as happy as I can be for an Arcanist model. Irrespective of the opponent, irrespective of the pool, what are are the, the common models that show up in every Marcus crew for you? Um, that last 15 points is also where I get into some of those additional tech picks based on what the opposing crew is fielding. What are some things that we can do uh, to potentially mitigate um, that power that Marcus brings? than stepping away from the screens, unplugging and sitting around a table to do battle with your friends. Every week, Third Floor Wars brings you the latest strategies, tactics, and reviews on board games, card games, and miniature games like Malifaux. If you want useful information on the games you already play or new insights on great games other people are playing, you are in the right place. Craig and Ray welcome you to the third floor and the Tabletop Talk broadcast. Howdy folks, Craig here on the third floor. Today, we're going to do a deep dive into the Arcanist Master Marcus and how he and the Chimera crew work in Malifaux 3rd Edition. My guest is Stephen Bynum, an accomplished competitive player here in the U.S. And Stephen was on the show several weeks ago talking about Molly, and we're thrilled he agreed to come back for yet another Master Deep Dive. So, Steve, welcome back to the third floor. Um, Since we recorded your Molly episode, what have you been playing? Well, I actually haven't been playing too much over the past couple weeks. I've got a couple games in with Sandeep here and there, a few that were Sandeep, Karis tag teams, uh, maybe one or two games with Marcus, but I've been traveling a lot for work for the past couple weeks, so I've just been living vicariously through a weird place in the forum. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I've been busy as hell too, man. I have really not had a chance to play nearly as much as I wish I could have. Um, and then I'm headed out here on uh, a couple of weeks to spend four weeks in India for work. 
Oh, wow. And uh, yeah, I won't be able to play or to, uh, to even paint. So, um, you can look forward to me coming back in July with a, <laughs> with a vengeance to, uh, get some models on the table and get some paint on some models. But, um, so let's talk a little bit, Marcus, uh, or Marcus, I called you Marcus. Um, Let's talk a little bit, Steve, about Marcus. Now, uh, probably the first thing that we need to kind of uh, get out of the way is uh, you have made it clear to me, uh, you know, off uh, off mic that uh, you prefer him into Arcanist. Um, can you give us kind of a high level sense of why you think Marcus is more at home in Arcanist than in Neverborn? Sure, no problem. I'm actually going to take the opposite approach, even though you asked me to go that direction and start with why I don't see the need to play him in Neverborn. Primarily, Neverborn players will, will give you the argument that their beasts offer a whole lot more to him than Arcanist does. They've got a number of good, solid choices like Roguru, Waldgeist, etc. But I really don't find him lacking for killing or combat power, which is what a lot of those models offer. So instead, when I look at what Marcus needs to complete him and make him competitive, I look at the upgrades that are available in Arcanist. I look at the versatile models and some of the out-of-keyword models that the Arcanist faction has and what they can provide to mitigate some of the weakness he has, some of the problems he has, and then complement the overall strategy that I play him in. Yeah, it's easy, uh, you know, at first glance when you look at a dual master just to say, you know, what's the different models? Um, I think that your type of analysis is smart, though, Stephen, where you, you, you go to that next level and not only say, you know, yeah, maybe Rogue Guru is a great killing model, but, you know, we've got we've got those models. And there's some second level things that you're getting out of Arcanist that you're not seeing in Neverborn. So I appreciate that level of analysis. So for people that aren't familiar with uh, the new Marcus, because he's not like the old Marcus, can you kind of give us uh, a bit of an overview of what kind of style and type of master Marcus is in uh, third edition? Sure. Overall, there's a lot of things we discussed last time I was on with you when we talked about Molly that also apply to Marcus. This could be a lot of the reason that I play Marcus. They're both suited to a similar style of play that I find to be really effective in a number of games and situations. He's a support master. He provides a lot of augmentation for his crew. He makes them more effective at what they do. He enables their maneuver. He also enables their killing power and their defense as well. Probably the biggest commonality when I look at the theme that goes across both the Marcus crew and the Molly crew prior is the maneuverability of the crew and the way the master is really that enabler and provides that support function for the rest of the crew. Like Molly's crew, Marcus's crew is really maneuverable and can essentially redeploy almost the entire crew from one side of the board to another in a single turn. I tend to favor crews with this degree of maneuverability as it allows me to dictate the pace of the game. And in most matches, it allows you to set up or create the opportunities to exploit situations or weaknesses throughout the game to your advantage. This style really makes the crew well-suited to maneuver-based strategies and schemes. It also gives you a lot of flexibility to look at and analyze how your opponent's playing, the 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 direction that they are taking to accomplish the strategy and react to it and interdict it, you know, and interrupt it in order for you to accomplish your schemes and strategy and impose your will. Yeah, you definitely have a, you definitely have a play style that you prefer. Um, that's pretty obvious based on what you talked about with Molly and now with Marcus. And, uh, 
the one thing I, I've kind of found myself um, in Malifaux doing all the time is, you know, I'll read about a crew or a keyword and um, I'll tend to like discount um, the mobility aspects, you know, a push here, a push there and things like that. I'll go, you know, that's nice. That's nice. But on the table, it is huge. And, uh, and I'm starting to really just realize that and uh, keep in mind, you know, Steve, I'm a terrible player. You're a good player. So I'm a little slow to this, uh, to this revelation, but the ability and to use your words to react to what your opponent's doing and to say, okay, you know, this is my plan and I was going to be here, but I see what you're doing now and I need to be over there. It sounds to me like you really uh, put a lot of value in the ability to, uh, to make those adjustments. And in order to do that, you need that mobility. That's part of it. Um, you know, it's really important to try to analyze from the, the very beginning the strategy that your opponent is taking, not strategy is in the Malifaux game scoring mechanic, but the method that your opponent's employing to try to accomplish that goal, you know, the impacts of terrain, how their crew works together, and then how you're going to counter that. And, and the key when it comes to the maneuverable crews to me is they let you set the pace they let you set the tempo of the game so that you can really focus on what's the decisive point of the specific game. What are those places where you really need to be able to impose your will to exploit a weakness in the crew or an opportunity that's presented to yourself? And then the speed, the maneuverability help you do that. You don't always have to play maneuver-based crews to do that. Some crews can do it through control. Some crews can do it through shooting. It just it happens to be somewhat of a coincidence that we're talking about two very maneuverable crews back to back. But, yeah, I do like that style because of the way it allows you to dictate those factors, to set up the exchanges, to create those positions of relative advantage for you so that you can exploit the situation you know, accomplish the goal, neutralize and disrupt them, you know, will simultaneously look into score your own schemes and strategies and make those those crucial differences by letting you mass, you know, on weaknesses, eliminate key models and disrupt their plan. So I, I've been thinking a bit of it as a reactive defensive uh, key technology, but you're saying it's an active one. It's a place where you get to say, this is the game we're going to play. And I'm going to, I'm going to decide, you know, the three or four activations that are going to matter in this game. Does that sound right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And the sooner you can create those favorable conditions for you to do that, for you to eliminate that key model, for you to set up the things you need to do to score, um, for you to interdict their plan, then the more opportunities it creates for you further in the game to just compound the advantage that you gain and continue to exploit it. So it's sounding to me, uh, Steve, like we've got, uh, you know, a bit of a support master here. Um, I want to dig a little bit deeper. Can you talk a little bit more about how mechanically, how does, how does Marcus uh, make his crew better? Sure. Absolutely. So Marcus supports his crew in a number of ways. You know, I, I talked a little bit earlier about the similarities between him and, and Molly. The key difference is while the Marcus crew lacks some of the reactivation tricks and marker removal that Molly provides, it makes up for it with, as I said a while ago, 
even more effective crew augmentation. Marcus can still draw cards, but it's more situationally based on models discarding up, upgrades within a six inch R of him to let him draw. He primarily supports his crew by cycling his upgrades onto key models to either make them more resilient by giving them things like armor or defensive tech like butterfly jump um, to give them greater damage output, plus flips to damage and onslaught to make them more maneuverable, to give them quick or flight, or to make them more resilient and hard to hit with things like disguised or stealth. He can also benefit from his upgrades as well, though he can't keep them from turn to turn since at the start of his activation, he discards all attached mutations on himself and then attaches one. Now, a side benefit of that is it does let him draw a card, but then it also helps put those upgrades back into the stack so he can cycle them back out either onto himself or other models as needed. With his upgrades, he can be a pretty formidable fighter on his own, Though generally, especially earlier in the game, I prefer to use them for survivability on him or key models and use him as more of a supporting master, using his actions to direct and enable the other models rather than getting the fight himself. In addition to retaining the benefit of the, of, of the upgrades, most of the enforcers and minions can also discard upgrades that he puts on them to get plus flips, to add suits, and then after their action is resolved, the, the upgrade is then discarded, which can also let Marcus draw cards. So he can give them benefits. He can let them fight more effectively. He can make your actions more efficient by not relying on the card flips, by being able to get plus flips, by being able to get suits. So it really allows the models to operate with the optimum efficiency that they can. So it sounds to me, Steve, like... Um he really gives you a, a, a ton of flexibility because if I'm understanding everything you're saying correctly, all of these different things happen, right? So if you, you, you decide what upgrades go where, you decide what upgrade gets put on Marcus for the turn, you decide who gets what upgrades, and then you decide whether someone's going to discard that upgrade or not, which sounds to me, you know, it gives you full agency and full flexibility based on what you need to accomplish that turn. Absolutely. That's for sure. Sometimes you get an advantage by keeping upgrades on some of those key models so they can get the benefit from them turn after turn. You know, in other situations, using them to get the plus flip to overcome penalties, to get a suit, to guarantee that you get an onslaught or a key trigger you need. Also, to, to give him some of that card draw he's lacking from other ways gives you a whole lot of flexibility to move some of these abilities around from model to model as a given model's role changes throughout the game and needs to be able to accomplish different mission sets. That's very cool. How about Marcus himself? Does he have any kind of decent offense? Uh, he does. I mean, he, he's your standard master. He's got, you know, a decent melee attack. It's stat six. It's the kind of standard two, three, five damage. Um, it also is pouncing strike, which is kind of neat. So, you know, potentially he can double up by getting attacks on different models. I'll be honest with you, though. Most of the time, I'm not using him to attack. If I want to do attacks with him, then I just prefer to use his AP for things like Call of the Wild, um, which can let another model, um, one of his friendly beasts, take a move. It's got a built-in trigger so they can instead take a charge. And frequently I see that as just a much more efficient use 
because when I look at his damage output from his own base attack, it's a two three five. I'd much rather transfer that AP, put it on a model with min three damage, something like um, Cerebus or one of the other key models in the crew, and let them do the damage, so Marcus can set back and continue to maintain that buffing role. Sure, later in the game, you know, if I need to, if I've lost one or two of my key beaters, if I've eliminated some of their key threats, then he might shift functions and take on some of that beater role himself. But primarily, I prefer to use him to help models out with movement, with things like his bonus action that lets things move, to give things additional charges, and then really to hand out those upgrades that take the efficiency and effectiveness of your models from decent to really good. As a result, I tend to build his crew around models that can benefit from those abilities he has. So primarily, I feel uh, chimeras and I feel beast because those are the limitations, you know, for models that he can put upgrades on, for models that he can um, push or rather allow to move. It's not actually a push and things that he can let move or charge as well. So how, how does how does he allow a Chimera to move? Um, how, how does that, again, mechanically in the game work? So he's got two different abilities that are both tactical actions that can do it. One is his bonus action. When he takes it, it's a stat six target number 11. So it doesn't really require that high a card. Frequently, you can hit this without needing to cheat at all. Uh, when he takes it, it's a six-inch pulse, and any friendly Chimera and Beast models within range can move up to three. We already talked about his use of upgrades and handing those out. Um, this bonus action also has a built-in trigger. So when resolving, if a model has mutation upgrades on it, then it can increase the distance it moves by the number of inches equal to the to the number of upgrades on it. So that's one of the ways that he can just pulse out movement. And when you look at a six inch pulse, mm. you know, he's on a 30 millimeter base. So you're really talking about a 13 inch zone, which that's can huge. be the majority of your crew if you've got your formation set up properly so that models aren't blocking the pulse from hitting other models within your crew. The other thing is one of his other tactical actions, Call of the Wild, and it's just a single mark, uh, model target, six-inch action. Target may move um, up to a number of inches equal to its move. Just like his bonus action, it's got a built-in suit that lets him trigger when resolving. Mm. Instead of taking a move, you can instead take a charge. Um, that works really well because even if you activate him early in a turn, a lot of the things in the crew have deadly pursuit. So even if they've been into combat close to the enemy, getting in there, attacking, pounding, and damage, at the end of the turn, you're moving them out to reposition, to set up new charge lanes, to put them in positions that allow them more opportunities to influence the board. And then if Marcus gets a chance to activate early again, using his call to wild action, he can send them right back in, either on the same model or on other models um, that are better targets of opportunity for you. Man, everything I'm hearing you say, Steve, just screams flexibility, which I think has a tremendous amount of value. So that that is very interesting. Um, how about uh, defensive tech? Um, w what keeps Marcus alive? So his base stats are pretty good. 
um, especially as we've seen the shift to M3E, where a lot of model stats have kind of went down. Marcus is still pretty fat and happy. I mean, he's basically sixes across the board. He's got a good health pool. Um, he's got protected beast. So much like um, in Rezzers with Karai and some of the other models that have protected or in a number of other factions where you have that same ability, he can pitch a card to change the, the target of an attack to a friendly beast within two inches of him when he's attacked. Um, and then additionally, his upgrades. Like I said, he can put his upgrades on the other beast or he can put them on himself. And some of mm-hmm. those upgrades are bringing things like armor, are bringing things like uh, where you can't target them with an attack unless you're within six inches of them. Um, so he's got those types of things, a butterfly jump from one of his upgrades that can make him really survivable, really hard to pin down. Um, to and, and those also allow you to play with him maybe a little more aggressively than you would with some support masters because you're not near as worried about something just coming in and taking him out in one activation so that he can get up there, support and augment his crew where needed, shift roles if required, and you're not near as worried about losing him as you might be with some of the other support masters. Yeah, we're seeing less and less of uh, defense and willpower six. Um, so the fact that he has both of that um, is excellent. That is excellent. All right. So, Steve, we're going to take a quick break. When we get back, I want to talk a little bit more about uh, the crew itself. Um, so we're going to dig into um, really how, how does Steve uh, approach building a Chimera crew? We'll be right back. Howdy, folks. Craig here. Now, if you love gadgets as much as we do, you're going to love the new Third Floor Wars Gadget Bundle from Schooner Labs. Branded with the logo of your favorite podcast, it comes with two measuring multi-tools, a compass stepper for those tight and important movements, along with a compact dashboard to track your turn, strat, and scheme scoring, along with your soul stones and pass tokens. It is the perfect bundle for anyone who plays Malifaux or just wants to look cool while doing it. The link is in the show notes. Check them out and help support your favorite gaming podcast. Okay, so we we got really a, a good idea of how Marcus, you know, looks and feels here in third edition. Um, and, you know, being a support master, um, it, I think it's critical for us to understand the crew. Um, so, Steve, if you were going to say, what are the what is your core crew? So what are the models that you bring in the vast majority of your crew? So irrespective of the opponent, irrespective of the pool, what are what are the, the common models that show up in every Marcus crew for you? Right. So typically when you talk Marcus, you can expect Chimera, you can expect um, Beasts. So when you look at those, you're talking um, Sabertooth Cerebus, you're looking at um, Miranda, Kojo, more Sabertooth Cerebus, just, you know, Sabertooth Cerebus and add salt to taste. Um, (laughs) When you play them in Arcanist, Blessed of December for eight points, um, typically something like that's my core. Usually I start out with Marcus, obviously the Jackalope cause you get him for free. Miranda, uh, at nine stones is a great henchman. She brings a lot to the crew in terms of just really amping up the flexibility that you already talked about. 
Um, Kojo, I really went back and forth on Kojo during the playtest, especially during the closed beta. I was very unhappy with where Kojo was. Once they got into the open beta and they started making a few more tweaks to him, I still went back and forth. And for the longest time, I was convinced that he wasn't worth it until probably maybe the next to the last update they made. Now he's almost always in my core crew. So Marcus, the Jackalope, Miranda, Kojo, Sabertooth Service, and a Blessed of December. And really, that's that's kind of my starting core, which is kind of the standard stuff you would expect to see from a Marcus crew. And then that leaves you about 15 stones left for filler. So what did they do to Kojo to turn him from a eh to a I, I, he's part of my core? So, um, you know, initially some of my complaints about Kojo was he's really expensive. He's coming in at 10 stones. I didn't feel like he was that survivable. He had some kind of neat abilities, but I didn't feel like he was that survivable. He's easy to hit. He doesn't have any real defensive tech. And then when I look, when I flip him over and I look at the back of the card, his damage track wasn't that great. It's a two, four, six. I mean, it ramps up real high, but the low damage was, well, low, you know? Yeah. And most commonly when you hit any model for damage, you're doing weak damage. So I just didn't seem really being worth the cost. And that all changed in either the last or next to the last update when they gave him toss as an attack action. Toss is an amazing ability. Um, for him, it's starting out at stat four. So it's stat four against size. So against mm. most models in the game, you're already at a plus two advantage. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it allows him to, to push a model up to 10 inches in any direction. Oh, um, wow. W- which is just huge. The things that you can set up with it, both offensively and defensively. And then at the end of the push, if it hits something else, um, or the push is interrupted, rather, then the models take a target number 14 defense duel or it takes some damage. And then he's got a trigger to also give you um, a damage flip on it. Really, toss is what changed my mind about Kojo completely. You could already do some tricks with him. He does have the ability where he can charge more than once per turn. So with some of the upgrades that Marcus can hand out, so that he's giving you plus to the damage flips on the charge, or he's giving models onslaught. And when you factor those two things in with something that ramps up damage the way that Kojo does on his damage track and the ability to charge multiple times in a turn, he can wreck small models. Small models he can wreck, um, or he's a good finisher for a big model that has a number of wounds left where you can pound him in there. But toss was the thing that completely changed my mind about him. And I don't want to give away everything yet, but we can talk about toss and what it does for you later. Some of the feedback I got on the on the last time I was on with you was one of the guys I was talking to was like, hey, man, you gave away all the tricks. Why would you do that? <laughs> now, when I play against your Molly, I know exactly what to do. And I had to tell him, I was like, well, hey, you know, I don't mind. It's all about growing the game. You know, if me talking through the way I approach something or my strategy for a given game or my thought process for why I build, if that's something that other players can use and get benefit out of and turn somebody else on to the game or onto a new master or gives them that new zest to try something, then it's worth it for me. 
And then if you go back to like the, the princess bride methodology of which cup is the poison in. Right? Exactly. <laughs> if you know what I'm going to play and I know you know what I'm going to play and I know that you're going to try to counter what I'm going to play because you know what I'm going to play, then I can set up the bait. I can create, you know, I can employ my deception plan to try to make you believe I'm doing something to really bring you into the cr- trap and create that favorable situation for me. So we can talk about toss later, but for now I'm going to have to just bait you a little bit with it. No, I like it. And, and th- this is a, one of the many things I love about Malifaux. Like, so I had not read Kojo's card yet. So uh, obviously I know what Kojo is. Um, and uh, I know what his, you know, he's this huge ape and he has an ability now called toss that by itself is cool. And then you tell me what that ability does. And it, it's, it's powerful mechanically in the game and it's fluffy as hell. And it makes me really happy. Um, about as happy as I can be for an Arcanist model. Um, that's cool. That's very cool. Yeah, yeah he is. A, it, I mean, he still suffers from some of those other things. I, he's not a model that you can just throw out there without support mm-hmm. and just let it all hang. Because if you do that, you're going to pay a price for it. But the way I run him a lot of time, he isn't in that role. Right. Um, I like I said, I use him as a finisher. I use him for these other things that we'll talk about once you can drag toss out of me, of me in a, in the context of employment. But th- those were really the things that that changed me on Kojo. Most of the rest of the things in the core crew are probably the things that any player is going to expect to see when Marcus hits the table. You know, in terms of Miranda, the Cerebus, the Blessed of December. And really the the trick from there is is it's what you do with the rest of the points. Right. Because the core does a specific set of things for you. It gives you a specific set of capabilities that you can use to com- accomplish a variety of, je- of objectives. And then that extra 15 points you got left over or so is where you really tailor things out, kind of like we talked about with Molly for the schemes and strats, for what the opponent's playing, or to mitigate weaknesses that your crew has. So, you know, it sounds like, you know, we've got we've got some decent damage output with the models that are making up in your crew. I want to talk a little bit more, uh, Steve, what do you use to run schemes with? So it, it depends. Um, some of that comes in with the filler, with the 15 points left. A lot of that's driven by the pool. You know, I take this core crew. If you employ the same type of approach that I talked about when we talked about Molly, not to keep referencing that, but it is a good frame of reference, where you're focused on seeding the objectives early, then this crew, because of a lot of of the same reasons, the maneuverability, the fact that in a lot of games, first turn or the first half of first turn, is really positional play, then with the degree of maneuverability you have in this between the push that Marcus can give out, between the individual pushes he can give out or moves to individual models, and then the amount of maneuverability they have with leaps, with high movement rates, with unimpeded of their own, almost any model, even a Sabertooth Cerebus, can be my first turn scheme runner to drop the explosive on the other side of the board right? or 
to get over to a key place to flip a turf marker or whatever, and then immediately shift roles halfway through first turn or going into second turn where they switch from being a schemer to a combat piece. The other piece is that filler. And a lot of it is based on what the pool is. If I think that I need a lot more scheming or anti-scheming, then that last 15 points is where I get into some of those tech pieces. Maybe it's I bring in Union Miners. Uh, maybe I bring in Windgammon. Maybe I bring in a, a Soulstone Miner, which can be a schemer, but is also a great utility piece as well. There's a whole bunch of combinations of things that you can do in there. You know, maybe I just need some additional mid-range models that can serve as, you know, second string beaters, you know, and then I can bring in like the Scorpius or Order Initiate, which I'm not really a fan with, Mm -hmm. who can fight as needed, but is also not critical enough to imposing your will on the other crew that you can't afford from to take an action to drop a scheme marker, right? Or some cheaper models like the medical automaton or some combination of those types of things. Some of these, which are more utility and allow you to do some tricks, to do some repositioning, to continue to augment your crew beyond what Marcus already does, you know, and then some of these are more true traditional schemers, you know, like the wind gammon or something like that. Uh, That last 15 points is also where I get into some of those additional tech picks based on what the opposing crew is fielding, like maybe Mechorachnids or something, which is probably something people aren't accustomed to see hitting the table in a Marcus crew. Um, But for a specific role, when you need armor piercing, the Mechorachnids can get the job done for you. And there's some other tricks you can do with them also. The order initiative I mentioned earlier, I haven't got a whole lot of mileage out of them. They do give you a free card to turn because they can do some upgrade cycling. The Scorpius is another one that, to me, he's a good mid-range beater. Um, access to additional movement since he has creep along as well. I'm a huge fan of models that have additional movement abilities. Right. One, it just further increases the maneuverability of my crew. But then any model I can put on the table that has a bonus action movement ability, like a leap or creep along or something like that, gives me another model who for select schemes can put out multiple scheme markers in a turn, allowing me to accomplish a given scheme or a piece of strategy with just one model so that everything else can focus on offensive action or controlling the board or counter scheming or whatever I need it to, instead of you having to dedicate multiple models to just lay in two scheme markers. That's very interesting. That makes a ton of sense. Uh, and we're, we're, we're getting, hitting back on that theme, Steve, of, of mobility. Um, which like I said, I'm just realizing now, um, how powerful that is. How about, um, first, do you ever hire another Arcanist master into his crew? I don't. There, there are a few Arcanist Masters where I have run Masters in tandem. I would say the the most frequently that that happens for me is uh, Sandeep. Um, I've had a number of games recently where I've ran Karis as a second Master in Sandeep because some of the tricks you can do with Banasuva and Firegammon and putting out uh, just fire everywhere 
which makes your fire gammon, your fire golem better. It makes Karis better. You can do all kinds of things. With with Marcus, I don't. So much of, of the synergy you get is based around his keyword or yeah. the beast, you know, model type that once you start bringing in these other models, I occasionally do for very specific roles. You know, some of my schemers, like uh, the the Union Miners or the Wind Gammon or Mechorachnids for other reasons, or even Metal Gammon, which will probably sound like blasphemy to most people listening, that I would consider <laughs> running Metal Gammon in a Marcus crew, but Metal Gammon are amazing for a whole bunch of reasons. But the second master, really the cost is just too high. There are yeah. masters where that works with, but in his, when I really need these specific types of models to get the most benefit out of what Marcus brings to the table. And then when I'm going out of keyword or out of beast type, I'm looking for these specific niche capabilities. And when you look at the core composition of my crew, if I'm down to only 15 stones left, I bring in a, um, I bring in another master. That's all the points I had left for tech picks and then I'm also having to cut models out of my base crew to yep. compensate for that to give me either additional scheme runners, to give me soul stones or whatever. With Marcus, I just find everything is cost intensive enough except for those last, you know, tech picks or, or strat scheme pool picks that I just don't run another master with it. That's not to say someone else hasn't cracked the code out there. And, you know, there's the world's most awesome Marcus X crew. Um, you know, I think if I was going to try dabbling double masters, I would be more likely to try that. I hate to say it in Neverborn, maybe because sure. of some of the things the other Neverborn masters play. But as an Arcanist player, actually, I play pretty much every faction except Gremlins. But when I look at Marcus as an Arcanist player, I just don't see the benefits I'm getting. And I can mitigate the weaknesses that he has with other choices without going for another master. Do you ever find yourself hiring Marcus with another uh, master as a leader? I don't. And and it's for the same reason. Same reasons. It's Marcus needs those other pieces. If you bring Marcus in by himself, you're paying 16 stones for a 235 damage track beater. You know, it's just not a good return on investment because you're losing out on the ability to push because what he pushes is Camarin Beast. He can't push himself. You know, you're losing out the ability for his other tactical action to let things move or charge. You know, so all the things that he brings that enable the crew, the majority of those aren't real effective at enabling him. And then if you're bringing him into another keyword crew, Unless you've got some very specific situation, you're not going to have enough beast or Kamara in there to get the benefits out of all the abilities that he brings. Yeah, he's he's not an an independent master like a Lady Justice or a Seamus, right? Um, he he needs the Chimera, the Chimera need him. Um, so that makes that makes uh, a ton of sense to me. Um, let's take a quick break, Steve, and when we get back, I want to. Uh, kind of shift over just a little bit and talk about those extra 15 or so soul stones you've got left over. And I want to talk about uh, all the, the four different strategies and how you build to them and your path to victory on each one of them. And then uh, let's drill down on some schemes that are uh, 
uh, schemes that just scream, uh, I need to bring Marcus. So we'll be right back. So now we got a, a real good sense of, um, you know, what the core crew that Steve brings. And before we kind of launch into specific strategies and schemes, uh, Steve, I was hoping you could kind of dig a little bit deeper. We talked a good bit about Kojo, but I want to know more about the Cerberus and about Miranda. Can you um, give us a little bit uh, of a deeper dive on those core models? Sure, absolutely. And that's a good way to kind of set the foundation for what the crew does, how it all functions together and then where those additional pieces and models come in as well. A lot of the crew is pretty straightforward. Miranda provides um, plus flips on defense for the Camara. She's a solid source of healing. She's also another source of Call of the Wild to give you additional movement tricks, to give you additional charge um, abilities as well, though for her it's not built in. And most importantly probably is the flexibility she gives you of being able to swap into another, another beast most frequently into another service, which is why there's only one in my base list, um, so that she can help bring the beat down. But she really brings you a lot a lot more of that flexibility as well. When we get into schemes and strats later, we'll talk about sometimes where she's not just another Miranda bus out there, you know, as another two-headed monster. Uh, but that's what she does normally in terms of upgrades. She'll get something defensive early. As when she swaps into a Cerebus, she takes the upgrade with her, and it already has Onslaught natively, so I don't need to give her a offensive-oriented upgrade. Kojo, you know, he's the damage dealer. He's my second-tier guy. He gets thick horns because it gives him plus damage flips on the charge and Onslaught, so it works real well with his escalating damage track and his ability to charge multiple times. As I mentioned, he's kind of a second echelon threat piece for me that can get tons of work with Thick Horns and Marcus giving him the extra charges and potential onslaught attacks. Once you can get multiple upgrades on him where he can pitch him for plus flips or he can guarantee he gets the suits that he needs, then he can be a real effective high damage dealer. The other thing, and I told you we'd talk about this even though I teased you, was the other thing Marcus does for me early on as he helps Marcus or some of the other key models get where they need to go first turn by tossing them to give them the extra <laughs> movement so that they can save their actions to do other things. Now, so you're throwing your own models with Kojo sometimes. Actually, probably half of my throws or more are me doing mecharachnid bowling or Marcus bowling with my own models to get nice. them into place. One of the other things that when they when we were in the open beta, they added toss, I was excited. I was through the roof when I read it because I could see all kind of potential for the tricks you could play, not just with throwing other people's models to isolate them and get them out of the way or put them in positions where they couldn't affect the board, but the ability for you to throw your own models to get them in key positions because it doesn't automatically do damage in 10 inches. Him pushing a model 10 inches for one AP. I, I, I still can't get over how good that is. Huge. But at the same time they did it, they changed the blessed of December to like size three. 
so that Marcus can't just start throwing your blessed around and things like that, or he can't throw your, your Cerebus around. But that's what he does for me. He throws things. He goes Macarachnid bowling. He goes Marcus bowling, you know, um, et cetera. Most of the time, a productive first turn, you know, for me with Marcus is he does his uh, Camerancy to throw out upgrades. He triggers to do it again. He does it another time, you know, with me stoning or cheating to get the suit to do it again. So he's laying out a bunch of upgrades. He's primal roaring to let everything move up. You know, and then he does call the wild on something to let it charge if something's out of position or get it into place. And then Kojo just picks him up and throws him across the board to wherever he needs to be. Right. Mm. Uh, The toss tech can also be used for a number of other tricks and set up as well. Like I already mentioned, like, you know, macarachnid bowling or something like that to get your macarachnids when you're running them into key positions to attack armored opponents. The Sabertooth is a lot simpler. He's just that all-around beater. As I mentioned earlier, he's a good first-turn schemer as required, you know, for getting across the line to drop explosives, to drop scheme markers out early, you know, to let you set up some of your schemes in advance. But mainly with Onslaught and Men 3 damage, you know, he's just there to pound in the damage. Typically, since he's already got all the tools he needs built in, he's where some of my survivability upgrades go. Usually helps me scheme or set up strategies first turn and then he switches roles as a dedicated beater most of the time i'll run you know him and the miranda service in tandem you know or i'll pair one up with a blessed or something like that so that you can get that one-two punch as needed to take out some really big important critical models for your opponent i usually only run one of them in my list as i mentioned earlier so that miranda can morph into the second one sometimes in a game like corrupted idols I might run two of them in my main list, dropping something else out, you know, if I'm intending Miranda to morph into something else, like a Slate Ridge Mahler or something like that. The Blessed, though he's not in keyword, um, when you take him with Marcus's Beastmaster ability, it doesn't cost you anything extra. He basically treats Beast in his own faction, you know, as if they were versatile, so you're not paying the tax. Like the Sabretooth, he's just extremely fast and maneuverable. He's got Leap. He's got Deadly Pursuit, just like the Cerebus do. He's also got Onslaught built in. You know, Crit Strike, Pouncing Strike. He's got a decent damage track. He's another one that I cycle offensive upgrades onto. Things like Thick Horns to give him plus flips to the damage on the charge or Serrated Teeth for Puncture. He's also another good first-turn schemer that shifts into a support beater or a, a one-two punch guy. He's also good at, well, decent at pushing idols around and things like that, since he's got several ways of healing at his own. You know, after we've talked about the core crew there, when I look at the rest of the points, as I mentioned earlier, there's a few common things I consider. The Scorpius is a pretty good buy. He's self-sufficient. He has the maneuverability to keep up with the crew on his own. He's got a really high attack stat. So that, you know, if there's models that are hard to hit, he can do it. He can be used to shut down Soulstone damage prevention when you're facing those glass cannon type models like the Vix or something that rely on stones to keep them alive. Um, I've also, as I mentioned earlier, I've ran the Order Initiates a few times, typically only one of them. And I I would run one a lot in the beta just to give them a, a test to provide feedback on them, but I've never really been happy with their performance. Typically, I get some card cycle out of them, but they don't really fill a specific role for me or bring any capability. 
that I can't get somewhere else in the faction or in the keyword um, for either the same points or slightly more. I mean, sure, you can put upgrades on them and then they can, you know, do a little better in terms of damage output. But you can take any model that you can put upgrades on and once you load it up, it's pretty good. That doesn't mean it's a good investment to start with at the beginning. For me, the order initiates just don't do it. You know, that's kind of the core for me. That's the things I look at. From there, as we mentioned, there's a number of good, flexible, versatile models that routinely make it into my list and fill a number of roles. The Soulstone Miner is a great buy. I find myself using it over and over, not just in Marcus, but in almost every Arcanist crew that I run. He's not guaranteed. He's not like a core model. It's really scheme uh, dictated for me. But the Soulstone Miner is one of my go-tos over and over and over in Marcus and in other ones. For the points, he can tank really well. He can provide me additional soul stones for Marcus and Miranda, which can help make up for the low amount I often run in the crew. Sometime, depending on what the combination of models I have, I might only have three or four stones. So then the soul stone miner helps me out with that. He's all also, you know, almost an auto scorer for a number of schemes. He's a great holder for magical training to with armor plus two and the shielded you get for it. It's really hard to take him down. And then getting our Arcane Reservoir into the list, giving you that additional card, um, helps Marcus out quite a bit as well. The Medical Automaton is something else I like in the crew. Just like um, the Blessed, it's not keyword. But unlike the Blessed, you don't get to take it for cheap. You have to pay the tax. But it's still something I like having into my crew. There's a whole bunch of tricks you can do with the Medical Automaton. It's not quite as good as it was in 2nd Edition, maybe. They got rid of some of the things that you could abuse or do with it, but it still allows you to do quite a bit of stuff. Bedside Manor is just an amazing ability that can let you play a little more aggressively with something and use the target as bait, if you will, to bring you know one of the opponent's key models in, knowing that you can just take the one attack, pitch a card, you know, and pull your model um, out of threat, you know, leaving their model out there exposed for you to be able to counterattack or react to. He also brings another hill into the crew so that Miranda can just stay in base form and on the offense for most of the game. Um, in addition, as I mentioned earlier, the last part of the crew is where I option other things in that I need for the scheme pool or the opposing list. Maybe Molman, which in this edition I actually haven't used yet, um, wind gammon, you know, if I need more scheme runners because they have leap, they're maneuverable. The metal gammon, yeah, metal gammon. Metal gammon are amazing for all the disbelievers out there. They're not just good in Mayfang, though I believe in them in Mayfang, but I get tons of mileage out of metal gammon. Uh, union miners, usually I don't go that far afield with things like the union miners, but for one or two specific schemes, having something like a union miner in your crew with an ability like false claim is just priceless. I mean, there's multiple schemes that that one model by itself with that one ability can let you score in just one activation that they're always worth considering in the right pool, even though they're out of keyword for Marcus. Um, you know, of course, the effigy, there's some other things like that as well. I really should get my effigy put together and painted to uh, give me some more condition removal. But right now, I've got so many things just lined up on the painting table as it is. I'll get there when I get there. (laughs) 
I can't believe I'm talking to an Arcanist player who does not have an, a, a, a effigy ready to go because I swear there was one model I saw all the time in second edition. It was that damn effigy. <laughs> you know, I've got him. He's in the box. Um, he, he's been somewhere in the queue for, I don't know, as long as I've yeah. owned a single Arcanist, but rarely did I ever actually take Arcanist to an event. I think there was maybe two events I took Arcanist to. One of them, I pretty much soloed Ironsides through in second ed and came out on top with it uh, up in the Phoenix area. It was actually a team event. Um, and then the other time I just took Arcanist with me as like an additional faction in the case for like fun games at night after the event. Mm-hmm. You know, in second, I was really a guild player when it came to, to tournaments or competitive play. If I'd been an Arcanist player for competitive play, then I'm sure he would have leapt leapt further up in the queue quicker. Right. Yeah. So, Steve, I want to uh, get into uh, the strategies. Um, So between Plant Explosives, Turf War, uh, Corrupted Idols, and Reckoning, which one do you think is the perfect strategy for Marcus? Wow. Perfect. That's a pretty high bar right there. As close to perfect as you're going to get. So much like when we talked about Molly and and at the start of this this podcast, you know, as you know, I favor crews with a lot of maneuverability and speed because they let you set the pace of the game. They let you pick your battles and engagements. And this style of play is really suited for probably three out of the four strategies. Um, When you look at Plant explosives, when you look at turf war, especially those two, um, for sure. But even corrupted idols, all three of those maneuver and maneuverability in your crew and being able to dictate the pace and the tempo just creates such an advantage for you. When you go back to the core concept of being able to seed the objective, like we talked about last time. I would probably say pick number one for me would be plant explosives. Yeah, I could see that. And, and really, if we're going to talk about playing the crew into plant explosives, we almost might have wanted to like do the phone a friend and bring in Owen for this part of the discussion. Last time I was up in the D.C. area on one of my trips for work, I had my Mayfang crew with me. I had my Marcus crew with me and went over to game night at his house, got a couple games in played May Fang against a Ironsides player up there and then got a chance to run Marcus against uh, Owen's Terror Crew. And it was plant explosives, corner plant explosives, which is like the ideal situation um, for Marcus. I mean, the crew is just so fast. I didn't particularly like the scheme pool in that given game, but just the advantage you get based on the maneuverability of the crew so that first turn of the game between Primal Roar, Toss, Leap, etc., I was able to put down three or four explosive explosives markers first turn. That's a big deal. Um, in a nice little triangle, minimum distance apart, way over in the flank corner of the board, um, on the flank that was the greatest distance from the rest of his crew. You know, at which point after you've got down four explosive markers, you can pretty much entirely shift focus and focus on interdicting their crew, on countering their approach, on 
taken out those key models on disrupting their schemes, you know, seeding your own schemes really quickly. Well, they're still having to try to balance and not just react to what you're doing and the pressure that you're putting on them. Um, as aggressive as that crew can can be and as maneuverable as it is so that you can focus on key sections and then just get the overwhelming advantage in terms of combat power where you've got two or three or four models stacked on one or two of theirs. And it really gives them that dilemma of, do I try to react to this? At which point I'm also not doing what I need to score my schemes and strats. And if I do, this crew is so much faster that by the time I react and I get the appropriate models over there to counter, you've been able to pick out, you know, or eliminate that one or two key models and then redeploy again to focus on another weak point that's been exposed or a seam between sections of their crews and exploit that as well. And that's exactly what I was able to do in that game. I seeded those explosives out early, and then I was able to focus on picking apart his crew and some of his key models, including Terra, uh, really fast enough that, you know, after I, I seeded first turn and then the next two turns, you know, got in there and went after a couple key models, went after Terra. And then after that, he was on his back foot. He had to react to my right. threats, you know, try to counterattack or implement his own plan. And at the same time, he was still trying to figure out, you know, where he could afford the actions to plan his own explosives and position to score his schemes. While the maneuverability was allowing me to dictate the circumstance of the engagements. He got some really good plays in in that game with bury unbury actions that, you know, allowed him to isolate a couple of my models um, over a few turns, forcing him to spend some actions to get back into the fight but overall just wasn't able to keep up with the tempo and pace of the crew. So if, if you're, if you've brought all of your Arcanists in the case at a tournament and the strategy's reckoning, um, if it's not markers, who do you bring? Who do you put on the table? Um, maybe Ironsides. Interesting. I can play, I can play Marcus into reckoning. I have played Marcus into reckoning. Um, I do like Marcus for plant explosives. I like Marcus for turf war, you know, much like we talked about with Molly, you can almost just say ditto for Marcus, use different tools to accomplish the action. And Marcus's enabling is slightly different, but the fundamental concepts are the same. With turf wars, with plant explosives, you're employing a similar high mobility blitz to get three or four of those markers flipped real quick. And then you go back to pack hunting to isolate and pick apart the opposing threats. In Corrupted Idols, you can do the same thing. The mobility gets you to the idols quickly, and the crew can bring a decent amount of healing between Miranda and the automatons, or models like the Bless that can do some healing on their own, um, or the Bears who can get up there and push idols and then recover some wounds to prevent them from being easy targets. In Reckoning, you almost shift tactics a little bit, but you're still relying on the maneuver advantage and the speed advantage to set pace and tempo that the crew brings and gives you so that you can really go to shift over to like hit and run tactics instead of blitzing out for me to drop a bomb. It's blitzing out to get that key model on the fringes or on the seams between sections of their crew. So the maneuverability lets you pack hunt um, to either go after their biggest threats 
you know, and then shift to picking off easier targets on the later turns. And in reckoning, that's how I would play it with Marcus. I'm looking for what's the, the biggest threats. My target priorities are real important because in reckoning, in the early turns, you don't have to kill that many models. Yep. You know, I kill a model here. I kill two models there. So if all I've got to do is kill one model this turn, I really need to focus on what is the biggest threat you have that over the course of multiple turns is going to have the biggest impact on the game. And do I have the right tools to eliminate that? If so, I can focus my effort on it, remove it because it's of the impact it's going to have over the whole course of the game. Taking away a key piece of yours, something that's a threat to me, still lets me score the strategy. And then I'm leaving those easier models out there after I've kind of taken out your alphas, which I can then pick off on the turns I need multiple kills. So I, I can play Marcus into Reckoning. Um, you know, I do like tanky crews for things like Reckoning because, you know, obviously if you can make it difficult for your opponent to kill your stuff, you know, if your stuff's pretty resilient, then it's hard for them to score. The Marcus crew just does it in a different way. Instead of putting out, you know, a lot of armor, instead of putting out a lot of shielded, instead of attacking things at ranged, or just having those one or two tank-style models that can tie things up while you pick things out, you know, out around the edges of the bubble, you know, um, or something like a Hoffman crew that's just armor everywhere. And reckoning, it's, you know, it's the, it's the hit-and-run tactics. You know, it's that fast-cav approach of get in, lightning strike, you know, blitzkrieg in, and then get back out before they can react. And if your target priorities are set up right, and if you're still seeding your other schemes so that you can do that quick enough that then you can focus entirely on neutralizing them and eliminating key models, then Marcus can still play a really successful um, and aggressive game into Reckoning as well. Uh, that is cool. How about uh, a handful of, can you give me two or three schemes that you love Marcus um, in? Sure. Uh, you know, overall for scheme selection, Marcus and his crew is real flexible. The view I take of schemes for him is real, is real similar to how I see them for any master. Ideally, I want schemes that I can set the conditions for and that don't rely on my opponent being accommodating in order for me to score. You know, also, like we talked about before, don't want to take schemes that require me leaving key models of the opponent's in a position where they can continue to affect the outcome of the game over multiple turns. So if that's the framing construct there, I'm looking for things I can control. I'm looking things that don't require me to leave you with key pieces and don't require you to accommodate what I'm doing. Then my preferred schemes are typically breakthrough, um, harness the ley line, search the ruins, power ritual, and outflank. Um, in a Marcus crew, I like detonate a little more than usual, and I don't mind claim jump that much either. Um, typically, detonate and claim jumps aren't things I really like. In Marcus, I can play them uh, because there's some tools in the crew and there's some tricks to how you can go after them that make him a little more effective at doing it than you know maybe some of the other crews I play. Um, I can also play Assassinate. But choosing it is more a function of how I think my opponent's going to play and use their master, uh, much like the game with Owen. 
you know, based on his selection of Tara and how the crew was set up, I was pretty sure he was going to use her aggressively in there so he could get the multiple activations out of her to go after key targets of mine. So since she was going to be exposed, I figured assassinate would be a good choice. But typically, it's like I said earlier, breakthrough, harness search, power ritual, outflank. But probably top two would be outflank and claim jump because these require me to take the least amount of unnecessary actions to score. Um, but really, it comes down to the deployment type, the terrain, the opponent's crew, and my evaluation of what I think I can score based on these factors. Um, breakthrough, harness, search, and power ritual are choices I usually like since I can seed them early, like we've talked about. And then as I have extra actions later, then I can get that last point I need you know, in the last turn of the game. Um, once I've done the other things I need to in, turn of new, in terms of neutralizing the opponent's crew, then I can drop the scheme markers I need to you know, get the last point for power ritual or get the last point for search or get the last point for harness. I like them because I can see them early, and then as the situation allows later, I can go after the second point. Um, in the Marcus crew, I can take detonate because I've got enough models either with leap or other movement tricks that I can score it with one model. Typically, that's the reason I don't like detonate is because in a lot of crews, for you to put two markers near a model requires you to use two models to do it. Right. Uh, with things with leap or creep along or things like that, where I can see both markers with one model and I'm not having to give up that action advantage that we talked about before, then I can play detonate as well. This is also another place where the union miners come in. I mentioned earlier that there's another, uh, that there's a number of schemes that the union miners just pretty much auto score for you. You know, and this is one of them. You drop a disposable marker or two first turn so that later on your union miners can use false claim, you know, and with their ability to drop two markers for the one action and spread them out, they can get things like detonate for you. You know, they're the easy button for you to hit things like search. They do all the work for you to do things like harness as well, which is why they often come into my crew in the right pool, even though they're not keyword and I'm paying the tax there. Um, occasionally I'll take claim jump, um, which a lot of times I avoid, um, but as aggressively as I play Marcus and then with Kojo's ability to push things out of the way, um, either with his toss attack or with the rude sign language sign language trigger on his marked territory bonus action, then he can get in there and score that. And then with upgrades from Marcus, with the healing that I can bring from things like Miranda, the automaton, etc., then you can keep him around to score the second point. Also like dig with Marcus, though if I do take dig, um, and I like dig because as we mentioned before, with all the movement tricks, it's easy for me to get the marker out there near the model and then kill the marker, the model. But I will tell you that if I take dig, a lot of times it end up forces me to take a metal gammon in my crew. And really, <laughs> the metal gammon's about the second point. You can do a lot of other things with a metal gammon. If I've got a Scorpius in my crew, then I've got another construct. So then the metal gammon becomes just like all my other models, where he can get a movement as a bonus action for free. So he can act, move, act, you know, um, or scheme, move, scheme, using that. And then with things like dig in the pool, he's that scrap in the backfield 
for you to set up that that second point for dig early. And he's just a good, cheap model that does a lot of other things, too. There's so many tricks you can do with a metal gammon. One of my favorite scheme runners in Arcanus, though he doesn't often make it into my uh, Marcus Cruz, except for that really niche corner case situation. Um, Power Ritual is another one I like. But, you know, a lot of this goes back, as I said a few minutes ago, about looking at the deployment and the analysis of terrain. Power Ritual I like, as maneuverable as the crew is with Marcus, as long as it's corner flank deployment. Those deployments let you take advantage of the mobility of the crew and get them in the right place. Um, outflank I like in pretty much any deployment, but especially like it when I can pair it with something like Power Ritual in corner right. flank, so you get double duty out of the models you're using to score it. Um, although I like pairing them and I'll play outflank into any deployment, before I said I like Power Ritual and corner flank. And typically those are the only times I'm going to take Power Ritual. You know, opposing crew dictates everything, but just as a template rule, um, because in standard or wedge for you to score Power Ritual, you have to get two markers in their corners. Um, which makes it a lot easier for them to react to, whereas in corner or flank, you've got a lot more flexibility on where your markers go. Similarly, I don't like breakthrough and corner deployment, as then I have to get into their deployment zone, which in quarter is a really small area, and as aggressively as I play my crew, they're probably going to be pinned back in that area anyway, mm-hmm. which puts them close enough that Breakthrough becomes pretty risky because they've got the tools back there to react. Breakthrough is really a scheme I prefer in something like wedge or standard or maybe even flank where the deployment zones are big enough that I can isolate or cordon off a section of the opponent's deployment zone and use it to score my schemes while I'm also protecting that from them as my battle line you know, is keeping them from getting into there as I'm attacking key sections of their crew. Similarly, this is the same way I'll set up search. I'll section off an area where one model can just lay out the markers required to score. Uh, with harness the ley line, I'll take the molly approach where I drop the markers first turn, and then I try to push past them um, and get in there to impose my will, create those those opportunities for exploitation that stops from my opponent from being able to get to them. With dig, as I mentioned, if I'm taking it, I'm usually going to have the metal gammon. Um, and in essence, I'll just play a few points down early as he's my dedicated second point dig scorer who after I get the first point, he'll just sit back there and make scrap and scheme markers, you know, for the first couple turns. And then he'll go out to do what I need him to. Um, if I have a union miner, then I may not take the gammon. And really, I'm going to kind of weigh my schemes as a whole and see, am I better off with a miner because he can score this and then do other things? Or are there multiple scheme pools where the miner would let me drop, you know, scheme markers near corpse markers to get dig? But then he can also let me drop scheme markers near terrain to get surge or harness or whatever I need to. Um, The reverse side, take prisoner, deliver a message, vendetta are just schemes I don't like. Um, I don't take them unless I have to. Granted, next time I play this against somebody who's heard this podcast, I'm probably <laughs> going to take them out of principle just because no one will expect it, right? It goes back to the, you know, game of death against a Sicilian. 
um, even though I'm not Sicilian. I don't like these schemes because the first two require me to leave a model alive, take prisoner and deliver a message. And it also requires me to count on being in the right position, you know, and vendetta I just don't like because there are so many if thens for vendetta to work for you as well. So that's kind of the rundown, maybe a little more than what you asked for, but I kind of not only gave you the schemes I like, but why I like and how I would approach them. And then for the ones I don't, I tried to give you the quick rundown on on why I don't like them. And even with a crew that doesn't have the maneuverability, there's principles in there that any master and any crew can apply as you look at the pool, the terrain, the opposing crew, and then your ability to score these and take away your opponent's opportunity to dictate whether or not you can score. No, I think that was helpful, Steve, because I, I think what you ended up giving us is not only what works for Marcus, but on a higher level, kind of what is an approach that works for anybody. Um, so I think that's excellent. All right, uh, let's take one more break. And then when we get back, Steve, I want to talk a little bit more about uh, what Marcus is afraid of. So uh, for all of the people that have stuck around through all of this and they don't play Marcus, they play against Marcus, it's time to uh, pull back the curtain and reveal some of the secrets on how to uh, beat a Khmer crew. We'll be right back. So, wow, Steve, I think we've done a really good job um, kind of dissecting your thought process and your approach. Um, and you've uh, made the case that Marcus is a pretty good in three. So if uh, if I'm going to be facing him or anybody else listening is going to be facing him, what are some things that we can do uh, to potentially mitigate um, that power that Marcus brings? Right. So. I hate to keep referencing the Molly discussion, but that's the best frame of reference probably for anybody um, who doesn't know me personally and hasn't had any of these kind of discussions before um, will have of some of the analysis behind some of the things we already talked about. And some of those are the same. I'd say probably the biggest three weaknesses of Marxist crew, uh, two of those he shares in common with Molly. One of those is the lack of condition removal, or at least mass condition removal. The second is the difficulty or inability of the crew to deal with armor within their keyword. And then lastly, they're lower than average willpower. Um, I'm going to deal with these in reverse order. The willpower issue is probably more of a problem for the crew than the issue of conditions. With the exception of, of Marcus Miranda and Kojo, most of the crew is pretty low willpower. With some of the key models like the Cerebus, you know, or the Soulstone Miners that routinely make it into my crew, having really low willpower, like willpower four on the Cerebus, and there's nothing in the crew at all that can hand out Ruthless, that can give bonuses to willpower, um, you know, or, or can help them get around um, things like terrifying or manipulative, you know. So the willpower issue is one that if you come up against the Marcus crew that you can exploit, you can exploit it by taking your own models that attack willpower um, with things like lures to pull models out of position 
the the risk of that is the crew is so maneuverable that a lot of times they can undo what you've done with a lure or when you lure something in, you're just creating the conditions for them to get to the target they really wanted to to begin with. Probably the better way instead of the lure is things that can do obeys. Um, obeys are like a Cerebus's worst nightmare. I um, because with Willpower 4, you know, a decent obey is going to be at least plus one or plus two to the stat above it. You know, and some of your obeys might even be plus three to the stat above it. You know, at which point you're having to cheat or flip a severe, you know, to have any assurity at all of them not getting the obey off. Yeah. And then even if you flip a 13, you know, for a 10 or 11, they're still getting it. Mm-hmm. You know, and then your nice stat six Cerebus with – um, onslaught is going after one of your other key models. So things that attack willpower. The other thing is defensive tech, like terrifying or manipulative against a lot of crews, terrifying or manipulative are not really that effective for you to rely on for defensive tech. Cause there's so many things out there that have ways of getting around it, you know, either ruthless models or high willpower models you know, or shockwaves or other things that can indirectly get damage on models that are terrifying. Or, you know, if you've got one or two key beaters, that's all you need to get in there and deal with a terrifying model, then you just keep one or two cards to pass, you know, your terrifying checks when you're going in on, on you know, you pick the model, going in on Archie, going in on the Rogue Necro, going on, on whatever. But in this crew, when so much of the crew is low willpower, they're not going to have enough cards to cheat all the terrifying checks they need to make, to cheat all the manipulative checks they need to make. And then, you know, the other side, like I said, is if you've got something like obeys, you can just completely disrupt the game plan, get their models out of position, and use their really efficient, effective beaters to beat down their own stuff. Um, That's probably the biggest concern for me is the willpower one because there's not much you can do to mitigate that either in or out a keyword. There's nothing I can really bring in that's going to mitigate the effects of the willpower um, across my crew at large. The condition removal is a different one. You know, that's a pretty standard weakness with a whole lot of crews. Um, Like most crews, the answer to for the Camaros to look for versatile models and not a keyword models to help with debilitating conditions. You know, in Arcanus, as you mentioned earlier, the standard answer is the effigy, which does a pretty good job. Um, but he still has to be available at the right time and place. And then he can really only, you know, in conditions on one or two models per turn. Theoretically, you can also bring in the medical automaton because he's got a trigger for condition removal on his attack. But then you are making the trade-off of um, removing the condition but it's at the expense of putting damage on my own model. A lot of times I'll have automatons in my list anyway, or I may at least have one in there for the tricks that I can do with bedside manner um, and other things. And then depending on what the condition is, it might actually be worth it for me to do the damage to my model, especially if it's a model I can heal later. Yep. The, the last issue I mentioned is heavily armored crews. I don't think this is significant an issue as the willpower issue. Um, and this may not be, you know, even as significant as the condition removal issue. Um, much like we discussed about Archie and the Rogue Necromancy previously, 
when you bring in these big minimum three damage models, you're really counting on them to get in there and neutralize your opponent's key threats. And then when you come up against heavily armored things, things that are armored too, where you're getting your damage reduced down to one point per successful attack, when you figure the average attack is usually only inflicting minimum damage, it can really stop your forward momentum or momentum and give your opponent more opportunities to deal with your key threats and disrupt your plan. Um, similar in the mar- similar to what I do in Mali with the Marcus crew, I go out a keyword to find my answers for mitigating the threat of armor. You can do some in keyword just with a high damage ramp that a few of your models like Kojo have, or maybe the blessed have that have really high upper end damage tracks um, where you can do things like put upgrades on them to give them plus flips to your damage on the charge or where you can get puncture so that you can get that upper end damage and still pound in some damage around their armor when you're hitting for a, a severe of six or something like that. Um, but really the answer for me is out of keyword. Um, against some crews and some keywords, this is an automatic choice based on how those crews function and the composition of those crews. In other cases, it's a matter of either including the right model as an insurance policy against outliers, um, you know, in the event that I think someone might have an armored versatile model um, or some out of keyword tech choice. Usually, when I'm looking for armor mitigation, my go to model is the Macarachnid. These can also be useful against other things as well, since their attacks not only ignore armor, but they ignore hard to wound, hard to kill, and shield it. You know, it's kind of like the uh, the Doc McMorning answer for Molly. The Macarachnids right. are where I go. The downside is, since they are out of keyword and they're not beast, they can't really benefit from any of the other things that Marcus brings to his crew, but they're pretty resilient on their own. Um, they're low cost. They're unimpeded, much like the rest of Marcus's crew. Um, so they don't rely a lot to help get them around. And then they're only size two, so Marcus or so Kojo can play baseball with them to get them where they need to be. And once they're there with their ability to ignore armor, hard to wound, hard to kill, and shielded, um, and since your average heavily armored model is lower on the wound count, then they can generally get the job done for you. And so really that's, uh, that's the weakness, but then that's what I use to mitigate it. So I think within the context of the discussion there, you know, I've laid out maybe what I see as the three biggest issues. Armor is probably the one that you can mitigate the easiest if you've got the right the right tools to do it. Probably the most frightening one for me is the willpower issue because there's nothing that the Marcus player can really do um, to mitigate the impact of the willpower-based attacks except – you know, use Marcus, use Miranda, use Kojo because they're less susceptible um, as your tool to prioritize targeting those enemy models that can go after your willpower and making them a priority for removal early. Otherwise, they're going to cause you no end of trouble and problems um, as the game progresses. Yeah, I think, uh, Steve, unless we see some big changes in the mechs, uh, the, the spiders between um, the open beta and the final release um, at the end of June, I think that we're going to see those in a lot of crews um, because 
there's a, there's a lot of value per stone spent on those, even out of keyword. Um, so I'm, I completely agree with you. And uh, as always, my friend, it is great talking to you. Uh, I appreciate all of the time you put in getting ready for these podcasts and uh, how generous you are with um, your thought process. Um, uh, we're going to have to uh, book another one, my, my friend. So you let me know um, who's next on the list. And uh, maybe in a couple of weeks, we can uh, sit down and uh, dive in again. Awesome. Well, once again, Craig, thanks for having me on. It's a, it's a pleasure to come on. I love doing this kind of thing. I think you and I have a great time talking about these and diving in. And then based on what you told me about the response from the community last time, um, you know, it seems like this is, is doing a lot of good and there's a lot of people that are getting some benefit out of it. So once again, thanks for having me on. You know, anytime you want, all you got to do is reach out. I'm more than happy to come back. Um, I know you've already got a few other Arcanist Masters lined up. You know, I'd be more than happy to come back sometime and talk about, you know, maybe May Fang or something like that, since I haven't heard you mention her. You know, alternately, if we want to go back over to the Rezzer side of the house, um, then unless you've got somebody lined up, I could always come back at some future date to talk about um, maybe Yan Lo or one of the other Rezzer Masters I play as well. Actually, I'm going to be selfish. I think what I'm going to ask is for Karai. Um, I'd really love to hear how you're you're putting her on the table. We could do that for sure. Um, that might be one where um, I could come on and talk about her, or maybe we could do some kind of three-way discussion because I know there's a f- few of your your friends in the English beta that are uh, Karai Savants as well. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that sounds good. All right, man. Um, take care and I'll catch you on the other side. Have a good one. Be good, brother. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate and write a review on this podcast so we can find more people almost as cool as you are. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube by searching for Third Floor Wars. That's T H I R D. We'll catch you next time on the Third